Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, and thanks for listening to the Family Recovery Projects podcast. Join us every week to hear about our mission, why we do what we do, and how we can help your family navigate through the turbulence of getting treatment for a loved one. Stay tuned. Hello. Happy Sunday evening. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Jacqueline Sazzi. I am the Associate Director at the Family Recovery Project. And as always, I am joined by Frank Salaya, who is the Grand Poobah the brains behind the organization. Hi, Frank. Hi, Jackie. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. Looking forward to another podcast, I guess. Uh, you know, nice talk today. Yes, me too. I always look forward to our our Sunday night conversations. So we have a couple things to talk about tonight. The, of course, main topic that... Um, we're we're trying to really keep a theme going and stay really keep some consistency with what we're discussing and the last couple of weeks we talked a lot about suspicion you know when you first start to become suspicious that your child or loved one is using drugs or alcohol and then what that's like and some of the pitfalls there and then the confirmation phase when you, you know, those suspicions are confirmed and what that's like and how to get through that. And so today we're going to be talking about what to do when there has been confirmation and you have made the decision to seek professional help, mainly treatment. And before we get into that, we just, Frank and I both just wanted to talk a little bit about the podcast because we got some great feedback last week. We heard from someone, I don't know if any of you saw in the comment section of our blog talk radio page where you can listen to this podcast, both live and recorded. We, you know, we had someone comment and, and really start asking some great questions, which, which, you know, after the fact, Frank and I talked a lot about how that's what we really want the podcast to be. We're not, we're definitely not expecting the podcast to be a place where you can come to get answers and get solutions and um and things like that because there's just not enough time and there's no way that we could you know we could do any personal responses to people so but we you know one of our one of the things that's really near and dear to our heart and why we started this is because eventually we do want to offer something like that which is our plan ultimately we would like for thefamilyrecoveryproject.com to be a place where people can go and sign up as members. And with their membership, they have access to all kinds of resources as they're going through the process, which, you know, as you'll see throughout the time that we're doing the podcast, 
we're going to get into all the different phases of this process because it is pretty ongoing. And we know that it really does affect, it affects your home and it affects your family. And that's the gap that we really want to fill with what we do is what's happening, you know, other than what's happening with the addict in your life who is in treatment or coming out of treatment or has been out of treatment for a while. In, in all of those phases, there's still the family and there's still your living room and your home. And we really want to help people keep that intact through the process because we have both experienced that not happening, you know, for sure. So, so that's our ultimate goal with the website. And we're going to have resources available there, um, videos, webinars, expert panels, articles, research, you know, Frank and I have really been working on on that aspect of it for a couple of years now. And we're really excited to get that going. It just costs money, it costs money to build a website like that. And um, and we've been doing this pretty much, you know, out of our own pockets for the past couple of years. So what we really want to do pretty soon here is a, a crowdfunding campaign where we can hopefully, you know, if we can garner enough of a following through the podcast and our Facebook page and, and just getting the word out that we can, we can get some contributions to help us get that going and get that started. So we just really wanted to let everyone know that that's, that's what the podcast is for. You know, it's, it's a great place. I have been experiencing for the past two years, Frank's passion and all of the research he has done and all the thinking that he has done and all the, you know, all the parents he's talked to and all the families he's helped. I've been hearing him talk about that for years now. And I really wanted, I really wanted you guys to hear it. <laughs> you know, I knew if we could get, if I could get Frank's voice out there into the world and, and his experience and, and his wisdom and his love and guidance that people would really sit up and listen. And, and they are. So us doing the podcast was really so that we could start to get our message out there in a way that was inexpensive to us and easily accessed by the public. So, so that, that's really something we just wanted to make sure was clear that we weren't we're just not going to be able to to solve problems or offer any, you know, um, actionable solutions in 45 minutes on a podcast, but that ultimately that's what we hope to do. So um, does that, Frank, does that sound right to you? Anything you want to add to that? No, it's, it sounds spot on. I think that, you know, it's been one of our primary issues is how do we, you know, approach a market that we know is out there. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's difficult to deal with a lot of the different issues that come up. And I have been doing it, as you know, but, you know, can one living room or one family at a time. Mm -hmm. And it's out of that template that we've been working to get some actionable uh, solutions for people to work on. Um, right. And it, it, it is going to be a mix. I think that that's the the one aspect that is unique about what we're thinking about doing is to make it so that families always come first, uh, that yeah. they, you know, that our, our goal is not to, you know, create an enemy state out there between what families need and what providers are, are actually, you know, uh, getting the marketplace right now. It's just to, 
you know, have that opportunity to gain just a little bit of, you know, get a nugget here and there to kind of keep people moving forward, keep families together. And then looking forward to that day when our addicts do make better choices so that we're more in line with where they're at um, and always taking into consideration that we have our own recovery to work through. So mm-hmm. I think your your description of it uh, was was right on, and I mean we don't have an ulterior motive here. It is going to be cost effective, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it it will provide a lot of information. And like I say, when we when we do videos, we're going to be doing some things that are that are really interesting in terms of sharing information from a lot of different voices um, and the panels that you discuss. We've got a lot of people kind of waiting for us to get going. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking forward to, to embarking on this, you know, uh, pretty soon. So now you summed it up well. I love when I do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so moving on, we just posted an article to our blog at thefamilyrecoveryproject.com about what to do when you need help. So. If you get a chance, head over there and check that out. And But that's a lot of what we're going to be pulling a lot from that article tonight and talking a lot about Frank's experience um, when he started that process and, and you know, through that process. So, so, Frank, I will turn it over to you at this point if you want to talk a little bit about the article and your experience and, and really what you want to get, get out there tonight. Okay. You know, it's, it's the first question that I get asked, um, I, you know, after we actually get a family to kind of recognize where they're at is what do we do next? You know, who do mm-hmm. we talk to? Because uh, it, as you know, we're not, we're, we're here to offer uh, in, in, a, in a sense, in a broad sense, you know, recovery coaching for families mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're, we're not really, uh, you know, offering kind of a therapeutic aspect to it. I think that, you know, that we, we need to be clear about that aspect. It's about, uh, I use the word perspective a lot and I met with a family yesterday <clears throat> and a lot of it is just kind of like, you know, talking about how you're going to align your priorities and, be able to make that first call or to make that first visit to uh, either a, a treatment professional or a center and not be so fear-based that you actually miss the meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, one of the things that I found out and in, in being at multiple centers, uh, it's just, it, this is the nature of, of, of an industry that's, you know, worth billions of dollars is that there, there's a tendency to, you get an hour and there's a tendency to go through an outline and a script and in any organization you have to have that type of process in order to be able to get through your day because you know we're 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 talking to as family members and we go in there we're talking to another human being that's you know taking calls and hearing these stories all day long and so they have to order their information and you know my perspective is helping families understand what are the things that are important to you when you walk in there i mean obviously Mm -hmm. there's the basic issues you know the state licensing you know from wherever you're at um you know the agencies that are responsible for that that track those types of things uh education Mm -hmm. experience and on and on and on um 
but that's really not where I want families to be stuck with at that time because you're going to lose that hour and you're still going to have to be making a decision because what happens is you start having to make decisions in a very rapid succession. Yes. About a lot of different things. Speaking of state licensing, I just want to throw this out there because I don't know if people know this, but that you can call your state's Department of Health Services and you can ask specific questions about treatment centers that are licensed by the state and they are always happy to talk to you and give you information. And I highly recommend doing that always. So moving right along. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I think that that's something that you, should, you know, families should be aware of and do before they even arrive there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you can broach that subject. Um, you know, if there are complaints and there are always people that are disgruntled. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to kind of take things with a, a grain of salt to, and, and put it into perspective and, be able to ask them up front and say, well, is it possible for you to speak to another parent? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody, a parent that has had some success here, maybe a parent that has short-term success where their child was able to turn their decision-making process around quickly mm-hmm. and then talk to some people that have been there a while. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, as you know, Jackie, I mean, you, you know, when you were, you know, on that front line and, and as I was moving through the system, there were many times that, uh, you don't see a lot of first timers for it. Just it, it, it cycles, you know. For a while, you get a, nothing but first timers where everybody's new, right? And then your mix, your your mix changes, and you got half of people that have been there for three to nine months, and sometimes there are people that everybody that have been there for two years or more on multiple attempts. So it's it's that's what we want to build into not only our conversations, but build into a website so that we're not treating you like you're in a static position um, right. because this is definitely not that type of process. Um, I, I could be happy one day and completely downtrodden and hopeless the next. And right. I think that it's difficult because of the, the weight of the work that has to be done at a treatment center or, or in a professional office in an individual for them to always take your call. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have other obligations and other lives at stake, and that's not to say that my life didn't have importance. I just grew a little bit resentful at times when I had an issue that I, I really wanted to kind of get cleared up, and there were no resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would spend hour after hour on the internet looking for things and, and reading the same things over and over, or in the worst case scenario, conflicting writing that had, you know, that had the same database, uh, that were using the same information, and they were coming to completely different conclusions. Right. And what, as you know, and my, given my nature, I started calling everybody up. Uh, I just said, how can you use the Monitoring the Future survey to say this when I just read this somewhere else? I, I mean, you know, help me out here. I'm just a dad. I just want you to tell me the truth or, or, or give right. me something authentic. Yeah, uh, truth is is kind of a tough word to actually put out there, but something that gives me context and perspective about what I I might be thinking, and you know, so that I'm not at odds with my treatment specialist that we've just spent, you know, a few thousand dollars on. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's that's a really important place to start is to start to figure out what you can about access about the facility, and then from there have a list of questions that 
are important to you to understand that are going to affect your family as opposed to what's going to affect the list that they may have on their website. Right. Does that make sense? Because I I know that what I was looking at, I I would see a list of maybe six items or ten items, and I and I used to think to myself, well, you know, my son's exhibiting all of those things, so I already know that. Right. Where's the list that tells me what I should be moving beyond and working towards? Uh, and right. you, you oftentimes don't even get that in your first meeting because, as I say, just the way that the system is built. Um. You, you actually have to kind of pay before you can actually t- you know start to get those answers and that gap that exists right there is something that will oftentimes stay with you for a while and so right. the, the worst thing for me Jackie was when I thought that my son was getting ahead of me mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know why, I didn't understand why what you know why Please. was I still feeling resentful when he was being so happy right okay yeah I was gonna I was gonna ask you too. Um, explain a little bit of what you meant by ahead of you, but right. That's, that's a great, I'm really glad you brought that up because yeah, I mean, I, you know, I witnessed that a lot with families where, you know, the, they would come in and the parents would just be angry, which is completely normal and understandable. And we're actually going to do a podcast on anger (laughs) in a few weeks. But they would be really angry and their, you know, the model, the program that I worked for, the model was there was a really intense and active peer group, right? So, and and a lot of the the kids that had been through treatment there stayed and, and really became each other's peer group and stayed that way for a couple of years, you know, while they were all um, when they were in kind of an aftercare program and then the the program I worked for set up weekend functions for them to attend and they all, you know, kind of hung out with each other and, and watched out for each other, you know, after they got out of treatment and, and which I, do, I definitely think has its benefits, but it also has some downsides as well. But so, you know, their kid would come in and here they, they would get, you know, they would get into treatment and, and they would be surly and they would be unhappy. And cause you know, no kid likes to be in rehab, you know, and nor do they like to, you know, have some of the constraints, you know, that they, they didn't have prior to being in treatment when people were actually, you know, paying attention to what they were doing and, um, and talking to them and, and, and dealing with some of the consequences of their actions. But my point is that, usually, you know, especially right there in the beginning within the first 30 to 45 days, they would all of a sudden, like things would start to look up, you know, and they would feel, they would start to feel better. And they were, they had people that they felt like they could trust, which, which a lot of kids that they've been, you know, using for a little while, um, end up around some pretty shady people that they don't feel that way about. And some of their friends that they may have had growing up may have stopped talking to them because they were going off the deep end and their parents have been unhappy with them for a while. And all of a sudden they were in this position where they had some people on their side cheering them on. And um, some of the physical effects of, of, you know, coming off of drugs were fading. And so they would be like, just happy, you know, (laughs) they would just be, you know, be feeling great. And the parents would actually decline, you know, they would kind of, they would get angrier and angrier. Um, because all of a sudden, I think not having the 
the distraction in their home and kind of in their face of this kid that they felt was in peril, you know, all of a sudden their, their, their child was fine and things were looking up and it was like, all of a sudden they had a minute to stop and think about what they'd been through, you know, and they would almost get resentful. I mean, not almost, they would, they would get resentful that their kid was happy when they had spent the last three to four, sometimes five, sometimes 10 years in misery because of their child's behavior and actions. And then 30 days in their kids like, Oh, I'm great now. You know? Um, And I mean, I literally had conversations with parents where they would say, I want to punish him. (laughs) I want him to be miserable, which is completely understandable, you know? And, And it's a very, very tricky place to be because I watched some parents who, you know, that was so intense for them that they would do things to sabotage their kid's happiness. You know, and and they would they would do things to them really out of spite and really because they, you know, they thought that they should have to be as miserable as their parents had been. So that's I'm really glad you brought that up because that is that that's a very real thing that happens. And I think, you know, a lot of times if parents don't really, you know, if they're not completely honest about that and they're not working with. Um, a treatment professional who understands that dynamic, I think sometimes they can be made to feel like, what's wrong with you? You know, why aren't you just happy that your kid's okay? Um, right. And it doesn't really and, and get talked about the way it should. Yeah, and it's and it's really tough on a specialist uh, or, or frontline person. I, I like to call them frontline people because they're the ones that are with our kids every day mm-hmm. uh, to have to drag that type of weight along mm-hmm. uh, because most treatment centers uh, will plan to check in once a week at minimum, sometimes a couple of times, uh, you know, just to give you an idea of progress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what parents need to look for in a treatment facility is, you know, what are, what are the benchmarks that you're looking for? Right. Um, and as our children hit those benchmarks and they're communicated to us, we can go, okay, great. Well, they're being more sociable and they're not being, uh, as destructive, uh, you know, with their communication patterns and things of that nature that are very basic to us. They're uh, something that we think everybody should have the capacity to do. And then all of a sudden, as I say, they jump ahead of us because we have the benefit of maybe a a parent meeting a week and our kids right. are there every day. Right. And so they cover, they do cover a lot more ground. Um, yeah, and I I I do re- I relate to that statement about wanting to have my son feel some kind of pain. Um, right, <laughs> you know it's that old. I, I you know I don't want I hate to say it's not judgmental. It's just that you know look I mean you've caused a lot of problems here, son. Right, and right, it, it, you know they get to that point where you know they they do understand what they're doing, but they're, they they want to apologize, and and the worst. The situations that I would find myself in is when I, I didn't want to listen. You know, I, I would I would actually think that he was just lying to me again. Mm-hmm. And that's the worst uh, place of sabotage that I could have been in at any time. Right. It would at times make me somewhat oppositional uh, within my own family or with a treatment specialist with my son. I mean, my son, I you know, I, I didn't want to intentionally drain that positive energy that he was building but I kind of wanted him to say you know dad I I really screwed up and I'm really really sorry well he's doing that every day for the most part in in recovery it's tough process right Um, but 
but it's just as difficult for a parent to realign that thinking and kind of get moving forward and get with the game. Um, and, I, you know, I've written a lot, and one of the analogies that I use is that you really have to, from a baseball standpoint, kind of know the strike zone. You know, you need to know right. where you're at. You need to know what kind of pitches. You know, you already know what kind of pitches your kids are throwing at you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they'll they'll throw you a, a, a ball that almost hits you in the head, and they, and they want the umpire to call it a strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that, but we don't really know what to do to go back out and say, okay, let's get this strike zone together so that we all are on the same page. Uh, and, it, and it does take a lot of work, and it takes a lot of information. And, and it's not that the, the system is not intending to keep that information from you. It's that the specialty system that's been in existence now since the first franchises went together well, almost 140 years ago um, it, it it was based on the thought that if the attic gets better, everything will work itself out. Mm-hmm. And as uh, you know, we were talking the other day about social media and how it affects our kids uh, in many many ways because they, they 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 get to so much information so much more quickly than an adult does most times or a parent. Um, you do get left behind in a lot of different ways. And, and what we're talking about here is getting left behind emotionally. And it's the worst kind of pain. You've already had the one pain of having to live through it, and now you're living through a pain that you don't even relate to. Um, mm-hmm. And the best thing, I, I think, if in, in my experience is to be able to kind of take a step back, take a deep breath, and try to have conversations that are based on where you're at and not so much worry about where your kid is at at that particular moment because eventually you're going to be able to cross your lines again somewhere down the road, but it doesn't happen. You know, I mean, I I think that, you know, when the Minnesota model came about, we talked about this at length too, that 28-day concept that grew out of the AA principles. Um, For some reason, we just got kind of socialized and conditioned to think that it's 28 days and you go in, you're good, you're fine, you come out. And, for some, a minority of, of patients and our kids, they, they're they able to kind of change their trajectory enough to kind of start to do better. Um, my son wasn't one of those kids. At, at 28 days, he was just figuring out more about the system and how to manipulate it in addition to me to continue to do what he wanted to do. Right. Um, but I, I really did. I thought, well, you know, it's a month in, it's a month out. You know, we go back, he goes back to school, everything's going to be fine. Um, and I needed somebody to honestly tell me that, you know, that it, it's possible, but it's not really probable. So right. let's, let's buckle up. Um, but it's hard for you to tell me as a parent um, that my child is not going to be going back to school in 30 days. Right. I mean, that's yeah. like you're, you're, you're like bearing bad news. Right. And we're already, ang- we're already angry. We're probably already sleep deprived. Um, our wallets are a lot lighter. <laughs> So you you have a lot of things happening outside of what you're trying to do that are going to affect your ability to be able to get a child not only to choose healing, but to put them in a situation where when they go home, they're going to be able to support long-term recovery and pick up your work and continue to move forward. Yep. Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of... um very hard things to say to parents 
<laughs> when you're in that position, you know, and, and you have to, that's the thing though. You have to, you have to be willing to say the hard things because, you know, and that, it, it, it's so interesting because it, there's such a, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, there's such, you just got to have such a balance because on one hand, as a treatment professional, especially in my experience, you know, you, you don't want to, for so many reasons that are not just, you know, financial, you don't want to lose somebody, you know, you, cause I would sit down, you know, with, you know, that the parents would bring their kid in and I would sit down and meet with the kid and I would just really fall in love with them, you know, and, and I could, I could see how much pain they were in. I could see where they were and what they needed and, and know that we could help, you know, and then I would sit in with the parents and they would be like, when can he go back to school? When can things go back to normal? And I would have to say, I don't know, <laughs> maybe never, <laughs> you know, I just right. don't know. And, that, right. and that's so hard because it's so understandable that that's, that would be a parent's definition of success for their child, you know, is complete having an, a good education and, um, and being able to lead a normal life, and there's just nothing wrong with that. And 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 sometimes I would I would almost want to prom make promises that I knew I couldn't fulfill, I knew I couldn't make, because I, I wouldn't want them to walk away, you know. Because for me, you know, 99% of it was because I really wanted to work with their kid, and I really thought I really felt like I could help, and I didn't want to lose them. And of course, then there's you know the percentage of it that I think maybe larger for some people, but, <laughs> um, but was, you know, definitely a part for me was financially, you know, I wanted, I wanted the, the business I worked for to do well and um, more people in treatment meant we were going to keep the doors open, you know? So, sure. um, so it is, it's such a tough position to be in, you know, and, and I really, honestly, that's a lot of why I got out of that field <laughs> and why I work with people privately now, because, you know, I get to pick who I work with and I get to pick what I charge and how much I charge. And, um, and I like it better that way, you know, but yeah, that's, those are some, those are just some hard, some hard questions to have to answer for people, but, right. but good. You I know. mean, it's good. You know, it's good that those, those are hard questions to answer. And it's good that um, I think, you know, people in that field have to be ready to deal with those situations. Absolutely. Right. And then, and then parents need to understand too, that there's, a, there's a mix of, of personnel out there. You have the people that have been able to live their lives without um, some substance abuse in their lives. And they get a solid education and they get, you know, the qualifications that are necessary for licensing and, um, to be able mm -hmm. to have that clinical infrastructure to, you know, mm -hmm. oversee a program. Um, but there's also a, a large percentage that have been down that road themselves. And so their commitment when they get out of it, you know, when, when they're able to maintain some sobriety, and it may not be complete abstinence, but at least they get their life back under control again, um, mm -hmm. they're, they're the ones that are on the front line. And I think I, I remember talking with, again, guy along uh, this is probably 10 years ago uh, when I was just starting with Chris and he he said well I used to think that I was the worst you know therapist in the world 
because it did, it seemed like every time that I thought that I was doing well, my client would relapse. Mm-hmm. And so it works kind of both ways. I mean, re- relapse is a, is a really difficult process for us to get our heads around as parents. Um, and it, it didn't dawn on me that it had a personal effect on a treatment specialist's life as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of like, well, um, I was working with so-and-so and we'd been together for 30, 60 days, 90 days, whatever it was, and everything was going really well. And I come in on a Sunday or I get a call from, you know, another kid or, you know, because of the the way that the networking process works with treatment, that he'd gone out again, um, you know, to kind of use the vernacular of the uh, treatment industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's he's back out again. And Mm -hmm. I I saw the heartbreak in not only his voice, but in his eyes and in his face. And, and I, I do believe that parents need to understand that it's it's just a, a, a really difficult process for everybody to go through. Right. And I think what, what brought that to my mind is when you said you, when you when you fall in love with these kids, and it's hard not to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my house became a crash pad for all of my son's friends as they were going right. through because – you know, they needed to have that sense of sanctuary to be able to be safe. Um, and I, I just saw that in all of them. Uh, but, you know, a, a treatment specialist takes it pretty hard to, you know, it's not their best wish. Um, I think you guys are really happy when you have a kid that can stay clean or mm-hmm. even stay clean and be able to, you know, even if they go out and use that, it doesn't affect their treatment in the long run. Um, there's so many different circumstances that happen out there that we just none of us have any control over except for the one choosing right. it. Right, right. And that, you know, the speaking of, you know, you mentioned people who have been down that road themselves and, and get some sobriety and then decide that they want to enter the treatment field. You know, that's what I did. <laughs> and I, you know, having had some of my own experience and, you know, this is probably not going to make me very popular, but that's okay because I feel like it's something that needs to be said. Um, I do believe if people are going to be working in the field and dealing with especially young people, I believe that they need more training and education than just they've got a couple years sober Um, because I don't believe that they... I don't believe they're qualified to um, make some of the calls that they need to make clinically when it comes to working with people who are using and abusing drugs and alcohol. Um, Right. Because I, I think I just, you know, I was diagnosed with a lot of things by people who had no professional training (laughs) and no education. And I I took a lot of the things that they said to heart, you know, and believed a lot of things about myself for years, a decade, a decade and some change until I really started thinking about things and started doing some of my own research and talking to therapists and people who had education and had, you know, some clinical training and found out that there were, uh, you know, there were a lot of things I was diagnosed with that do not apply to me. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I definitely, I mean, I never, I never felt right diagnosing anyone with anything, but, you know, I would hear someone say things that I, at the time as a proclaimed alcoholic and addict in recovery that I related to. And therefore I assumed that meant they also were an alcoholic or an addict, or at least had the tendencies. And that's really dangerous because there are a lot of mental illnesses that look a lot like alcoholism. Well, what we call, what, what some people call alcoholism and addiction um, that need to be treated you know, and that need more than just the 12 steps or an outpatient, you know, treatment and, and vice versa. You know, there are things like, you know, what I figured out there was, I I was, I was suffering from PTSD and was misdiagnosed as something else. And a lot of my PTSD never got dealt with. And I mean, it is now, but you know, I just, I think it's really, really important to tell people on the front end um, to make sure whoever is working with them and their child has, you know, some, some professional clinical training and is, you know, is qualified to, to help them figure out and get down to what's really going on. Right. And, and that's a good that's point, Jackie. I mean, thank, thank, thank you so much for, for sharing that personal part of your life because I think that's what made you uh, somebody special in our lives in that context mm-hmm. and that you didn't, you didn't judge us. You just mm-hmm. were more patient. And I think that's what parents really need is, um, you know, what we have today is, is in the industry is basically a rush to uh, what's called evidence-based therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that we still have probably 90% of all of our treatment centers still subscribe to the basic tenets of the, the 12 steps and when you throw motivational enhancement therapy and cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy and a lot of other things on top of that, when you have your primary treatment process in terms of, you know, formal treatment where you're actually going somewhere to get help, have that cocktail mixed and kind of stirred up in this, you know, brew of things, um, I, I, I really think that we need to become a little bit, you know, more... Uh, you know, translucent about, you know, transparent about being able to say, this is what we do and, and, and we have set these benchmarks because of these things. Um, I don't think that parents are not, you know, capable of not being able to process that. I mean, you know, we are mm-hmm. fearful. We, we we are things. But again, those resources are things that that information has to be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I, you have to know as a parent going in, if you're going into a, in, in, into a really hardcore 12 step program that they're going to promote complete abstinence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, you know, you're talking to a 16, 17, maybe 18 year old, um, young person and they're telling them that they can never have another drink in their life, that they're always going to be an addict, um, that, that they have a character flaw. Um, you know, in, in, in 1933, when they were when they were writing the big book and getting that together, it made sense. It was two years after Prohibition, um, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of morality involved with it. And mm-hmm. now that we're moving towards the scientific side, um, I think that you know the people that are on that front line need to be given some sense of context of how we got here. Mm-hmm. Um, because as parents, as parents, when we read it. You know, we, we read about stuff, and you know, I used to think, well, I wonder, 
you know, and talking with somebody that sounds kind of like they're using a cognitive therapy process mm-hmm. there, but they don't really they don't really say what it is mm-hmm. because I'm not even sure if they even have been trained to even process that part of it. Um, well, and and to follow up a little bit on what what you said earlier about you know telling 16, 17 year olds that they you know their only option is abstinence and that they can never drink again and they'll always be an addict. And what what very quickly follows that is if you ever do drink or use drugs again, you'll most likely die. <laughs> right. You know, so. Or or the yeah. other two institution, institutionalized around the street. I mean, it, right. it goes hand in hand with that with right. that approach. Right. Yeah, and that's there's just nothing clinical about that. <laughs> no, but you know, on my journey when I was contacting Department of Justice, on you know for days on end and being hold on out, you know, on you know for two hours on hold to try to talk to somebody about this data, um, you know it. it you know, I really wanted to find out how truthful that statement was, and I'm not, you know, ever discounting the fact that we don't lose people that we that right. we love and care about. Right. Um, it's just that you know, don't don't scare me any worse than you need to. I mean, scare me when you have to. Right. But don't scare me just for purposes of of you know promoting a decision based on right. just that and not some other understanding of actually what's going on here. Right. Um, and and I, like I say, I think the the other thing that that, that I found uh, that I think a lot of parents run into that it's difficult to deal with is turnover. Um, right. Because once you make that decision to get in, you know, if you're an intensive outpatient or even if you're residential, when you talk to your child and they go, "Hey, I walked in today and and uh, you know my counselor's gone or somebody new," and you're kind of as a parent, you're kind of like, "Well, what happened?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. They won't really tell us where he or she went, but there's somebody new. And so you end up having to start over feeling again. Right. Um, you know, you, you call the clinical director and then you'll get the, you know, well, they moved on. You know, they took another job. They moved out of state. There's a, you know, a number of different reasons that people change jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one thing is, is that it's because it's such a difficult job to do. Right. Um, and if you get people without that training, as you're talking about, they really don't have any place to put it. You know, we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about parents and how we grow resentful mm-hmm. that our kids are doing better than us. I mean, we really don't have any place to put it unless we're lucky enough to have a strong support group and a parent group. Um, right. Yeah, we really don't have any place to put it. Um, yeah. You, know, you can share it with your spouse. You don't want to dump it on your other kids because the other kids, in, in, in my experience, uh, Jackie, and I, and I always found this really refreshing in the parent groups and talking with people on intake, was the ones that were really, really honest um, were siblings. Right, um, That yeah. were yeah. choosing not to use. I mean, they, 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 would, they had no problem calling the kettle black. There was right. no, no denial. Um, their pain was very, very real. Um, yeah. You know, but... Again, it's something that we want to work on, and we want to provide resources for so that parents can understand. We want to have a you know a site uh, or a portion of our site dedicated to siblings that's not based on that same basic you know elements that uh, haven't worked in the past. Yes, and that that's actually one facet of my my coaching business is I work with siblings because there's really nothing out there for them. I mean, you think there's not much for parents. <laughs> there's nothing for siblings. Um, I mean, right. there's Al-Anon, but if it's a, if it's a child, if it's a younger person, um, there, you know, it, it doesn't, Al-Anon's not really going to be a, a comfortable place for them. And 
Um, and I don't think that Alateen is really um, going to give them everything that they need, you know, so it's, it's tough. It's a tough place to be. So we're, we're at about a minute and 30 seconds before the end of our show. Event of 90 seconds. So I think we talked about a lot of good stuff here tonight. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's just good to put it on the table. Um, obviously yeah. we're going to have uh, 20 different, you know, programs and, 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 you know, points of interest and talking points that we're going to be developing to put out there to help families. Uh, so it, as you said earlier, we, we just want to go ahead and, and, and get these things on the table, get people thinking about what's important. And then when also when they reach out to us to be specific, if they're, if they're having a specific issue to help guide us yeah. too. Yeah. Because uh, we, we, we don't always have all the answers, but we can definitely help them find the resources. Yes. And you can reach either one of us at Jacqueline at the family recovery project.com or Frank at the family recovery project.com. You can also find us on Facebook at the family recovery project, or you can go to our website, which is the family recovery project.com. And thank you so much for listening next week. We're going to be talking about money. We're talking about the financial commitments that come up as a part of putting someone in treatment and, um, Frank will have all kinds of fun stuff to share with you about that. So <laughs> thank you for joining us and we will see you next week. Same place, same time. And I hope you all have a great night. Bye, Frank. Bye, Jackie. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.